Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Ryan O'Donnell is an activist who cares deeply about social and environmental justice. This Chicago native attended Howard University and is an endless well of talent. His wide array of skills makes him tend to enhance anything that he's involved in as he fights for justice, including organizing to help refugees and connecting with animal rights activists. As we celebrate pride in cities across the world, O'Donnell wants to shine a light on the plight of LGBTQI refugees, particularly in the Kakamu refugee camp in Kenya. This refugee camp has always been full of problems. Dust storms, high temperatures, poisonous spiders, snakes, and scorpions, outbreaks of malaria, cholera, and other hardships. But it's especially difficult if you are a member of an LGBTQI community. Many of these refugees fled homophobic and transphobic violence in nearby Uganda, but continue to face threats and violence from locals and other refugees for the simple reason that they are LGBTQ. LGBTQI people in Africa are frequently subject to mob and state-sponsored violence and criminalization. Many are forced to become refugees, and when they flee for their lives, leave behind their homes, expecting to find safety to get the rights that were denied in their home countries. O'Donnell believes it's important to shine a light on the lives of these refugees in Kakuma and reminds us that until we are all free, none of us are free. Ryan, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? <laughs> well, um, well, hello, Michelle. It's nice to be here. I appreciate your uh, time and you giving me um, some of your time. I'm I'm doing fine. I'm kind of tired, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you're there in Chicago, and uh, we were talking earlier, and I was telling that part of how you came on my radar was because of your connection to Mark Loveless. And Mark always did the Bolder Than Out um, conference each year, but what he always made sure 
was to take the focus beyond just what was happening in our LGBTQ plus community here in the United States and help people recognize that, you know, as they say, until we're all free, none of us are free, until we all can live our truth, none of us can live our truth. How did you meet Mark, and how did you get involved in this work? Um, how did I meet Mark? Um, I didn't realize you were going to be talking about Mark, so I didn't This is uh, very, um, how did I meet Mark? I don't know. It's kind of just like I feel like, you know, when you are an activist mm-hmm. and doing enough things, then eventually, uh, you know, your paths cross enough time that you wind up um, noticing someone. Um, Mark had, I think, approached me to ask me um, something. But, like, we, for one, I know both met at one point because we were uh, supporting um, Kamala Harris and Mm. we were um, a part of sort of the local on the ground um, initiative for uh, Kamala Harris at one point. Um, And so I saw him at, I mean, and this isn't the first time, I don't think, but I saw him at um, a debate watch party. I remember that. Um, But, yeah, I I mean, I've been involved in this work for quite a long time. Um, Even before I, I mean, honestly, since I was, like, in third grade, I've been uh, organizing and trying to get people to sign a petition about something. Um, mm. and so, I, well, um, do you remember what that what what the, the petition was in the third grade? <laughs> yes, but uh, it wasn't exactly um, it wasn't exactly fighting for LGBTQI refugees. <laughs> In, uh, I like uh, right now, but um, but yeah, I was I remember um, kind of vividly that that um, time. Well, one time of me trying to circulate a petition um, and getting getting signatures to say that I wasn't talking um, after a teacher had disciplined me. Um, okay for something that I felt was unjust. And I remember that teacher bawling that petition up and throwing it in my face, literally, <laughs> like, hitting me hitting mm-hmm. me in the face with it. Um, and so so that, <laughs> that sort of stuck with me. But I've always been pushing for some something in some way. 
I love that, you know, because often people will go like, well, when did you know you were an activist? And so many people that I talk to, they can relate back to some time when they were a kid and something just, you know, rubbed them the wrong way and they said they were going to stand up for it, uh, against it. And there you were, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was kind of the person, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't popular. I was kind of the person that everybody was always annoyed with and everybody was always like, I don't know, um, <laughs> everyone was, people would say like that I should be a, I should be a lawyer. Um, but they wouldn't say it in a nice way. They would say it in a way like to say like, just, just like I just enjoy arguing, which I really don't. <laughs> uh-huh. I really don't. <laughs> which is like I really don't want to be uh, a lawyer because I don't want to have to argue the wrong side. <laughs> I don't. I don't find that really compelling. Um, I'm very interested in what is right, and I feel like anybody who knows me um, at all really knows that. Like that is integral to who I am, um, questioning and um, making sure to do what is right. Mm-hmm. Wow. So when you, what made you be, become an activist about LGBTQ issues? And how did you you know, recognize that you needed to see, to look at it beyond just this country? I don't really know. I mean, I, I don't really even think, I didn't think of it at least originally as something so much about, like, LGBTQI issues, I don't think. It was just more so, like, this is, this is right, right? Um, uh-huh. I used to be, I used to be like a hardcore Bible thumper, so I wasn't like, um, I wasn't like, I wasn't like super pro LGBTQI stuff, but even though I was sort of like, oh, it's bad, but I also was like, it's, I don't know, I don't know, it's hard for me to describe it. But even though I, you know, I would hear people in the, you know, church and obviously uh, always condemning uh, gay people and, like, abominations and this and that. And mm-hmm. so even though I wouldn't challenge that, so much back then, it, it I feel like maybe it's still sort of built up in me. Um, and I was doing things like I was I volunteered for like the the AIDS march in DC um, before I had come out, um, and I've been doing things like. I guess I guess the sort of like 
Christian version of like supporting, you know, um, LGBTQI stuff, which is sort of like a soft, uh, like a soft version. I feel mm-hmm. like generally of supporting um, LGBTQI rights um, as opposed to now where I'm like just like fiercely, fiercely supporting it and like, and it's not. It's not so much. Um, it's not tempered down at all. Uh, mm-hmm. But back then, yeah. Even even while sitting in the church and hearing the sermons about, you know, LGBTQI or not not LGBTQI, but about gay people and about those people, uh, those sodomites and all that kind of stuff, yeah. like going to hell. Um, Still, it it was like sad to me more than anything, and I still don't really understand. Like, if people are really like, if people really believe these things, then wouldn't you just be sad for LGBTQI people instead of being so hateful? Like, wouldn't you just be mm-hmm. like, "Oh, that's really sad that you're going to hell." Like, it's really sad as opposed to like. Let me, like, I don't know, harm you and beat you up more. Like, wouldn't you have more sympathy? And I feel like, I guess, um, while I believed that stuff, I guess I had had uh, sympathy, and I was really sad about it. And also I was sort of, uh, I guess, questioning um, myself, too. But I don't even think that it had anything to do with me crushing myself as much as it was just like, um, just again, like like I said before, I'm always questioning like what is right, and so uh-huh. it was. Eventually, I came to the point where I recognized that, like, regardless of what any religion says. It's it really, um, no religion could ever persuade me that that uh, LGBTQI people are just like inferior and just necessarily like, um, and just should be I don't know relegated to to being harmed and oppressed. Mm-hmm. Now you said at one point like you had you were like a soft resistance, and then you became fierce. Was there one particular thing that that was just like where you had had enough that that pushed you from you know trying to understand or you know work with with people or understand how they were thinking to being like such a so fierce as you are now? <laughs> I um. You know, it's weird, but it came a lot out of, uh, it came a lot out of animal rights for me, (laughs) Uh, because it was another thing that I sort of, I guess, uh, deferred to the Bible and like 
And so it always felt really terrible to me, like, like why are humans doing all these terrible things to animals? But it was like, um, you know, God gave humans dominion over <laughs> over the creatures of the earth or something else. Like, well, I just guess. I had to accept that because if it's in the Bible, it is absolutely is absolutely true. <laughs> and and okay. I guess all these all these combination of things got me to the point got me to a point where I came to the conclusion that Christianity is what I mean. I don't want to offend like like uh, I guess you know the listeners, but just speaking for me, it got me to the point where I was like, these things are wrong. Christianity is wrong. And Christianity uh-huh. is what is bad here. Like LGBT, like homosexuality is bad. Like Christianity and oppressing, <laughs> oppressing uh-huh. people is what is bad. Like, so it was a dynamic shift in it had a lot to do with um, a very sort of, I don't know, tricky um, and not not entirely um, immediate, I guess, rejection of Christianity, mm-hmm. going from being like like desperate to, you know, get that, I guess, love out of, like, this religion to being, like, this religion is something that in many ways is on the opposite sides of all the things that I'm trying to do. Like, I am not basing my ethics off of what would Jesus do anymore mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. and, that mm-hmm. is, and, and now to me it just all these things I I even see some of the things that are like throwback I just like if I could I like wince like at how I don't know it's it's amazing how much um, you know we in, indoctrinate our children and ourselves our community members into these sort of uh, moral codes um, and I guess eventually I just I just really got a post-conventional morality and that is what changed things from being just uh, casually sort of like looking to be like like good to being fiercely Well, you know, that makes sense to me because I know exactly when you stop and you look, if you walk out in an environment and then you go and see how so much has been destroyed and then you'll see like, like you said, there'll be an animal and it's like almost hunted to this point of extinction. And then we see how people are treating people, you know, people who just hate gay people and want to 
you know, eliminate them. And like you said, they're doomed to hell. You know, the same thing as people, the same like when you see what racism is coming and sometimes it's from people who are going to church every Sunday, but, you know, they're okay with all of this. After a while, you know, if you stop and you, and you, you look at it, you look at the environment, you look at animals, you look at people, how we're, we're you know, it flies in the face of what they're teaching you, you know, when you go to church, you know, like you said, how people have the man has dominion, all of this, but you're, you're killing it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's amazing to me how more amazing than anything. It's amazing to me how long it took me. It was a very difficult thing to, um, because I really, I think I came to, I came to religion in a way that was beyond um, what my, you know, parents uh, did. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like I even maybe radicalized with them. I feel like they radicalized me and then I, I really leaned into that. Uh, sort of being this hardcore, perfect sort of ideal Christian thing, and then um, maybe radicalize them more in that sense. And it just seems crazy to me now the things that I um, um, I guess believed. <laughs> I, well, definitely believed, and now my beliefs are really based on uh, on facts and ethics, like mm-hmm. directly on ethics, not as opposed to indirectly, like adopting the more moral uh, code of an institution like Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. All right, and we're going to take our our first break here and when you come back I want to talk with you about Juneteenth so we'll be right back this episode of collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm talking with Ryan O'Donnell. You know, Ryan, um, so they made Juneteenth a holiday. And um, to me, it's like, and you see people, oh, we can celebrate, where to me it's more like we should be commemorating what that means. And I know that I was on a Zoom meeting, and it's sort of one of the things that 
although I just had mixed feelings about it. You know, I think it should be commemorated, but, you know, for some people we know it's just another day off. And I was on a Zoom mm-hmm. meeting with two non-black people, and uh, one of them, you know, she just sort of said, like, oh, well, isn't it nice that they made it a holiday for them. It's about time it got recognized. And then the other one went on to like, yeah, now we get another day off because it's like a paid holiday. And like there was just like something that just like, you know, made me angry with both of them. And what, so one of them asked me like, she put out there like, you know, and it was started by, she was in Texas and she was like, this woman who was, you know, and I can't think of her name and I, and I just didn't say, and you know, with that pause, like I was supposed to give them the name and everything. And I'm going like, you don't know my history, you know, <laughs> you, know you don't know it. Google it if you want to know. But as I was thinking about that and there was like, I mean, yeah, it hasn't been easy for black people. We need to commemorate what has happened as far as slavery and all of that. But I was happened to look at your page and you had a video of June, uh, from Juneteenth, and you were showing LGBTQI refugees in Kenya. And, you know, that's not a holiday. I mean, through Boulder Than Out, through we have a place here that's, um, that deals a lot with refugees. I know that for LGBTQI people around the world, I mean, and now, you know, to try to get out, look for sanctuary. I mean, sometimes their families can be persecuted if they don't out them. You know, you put that up there and you and you talked about the condoned and the bigotry there. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Outside yes. Of this I, yes. I, um, so like you said, Juneteenth is uh, holiday that is celebrated, I think, exclusively in the United States, although it has received more attention um, in other countries because it has become a federal holiday here. And that's great. That's great, right? But I really appreciate what you just said um, about it being a I think all of these things really need to be days where something something meaningful needs to come out of it, right? Because just a day off is just it's, it's even days where you know we come together and have some sort of um, community engagement, I appreciate that, like the Juneteenth parties. I do. I appreciate that stuff. But I think that um, it's just it's not anywhere near enough because ultimately we as black people in America, right, we have not experienced slavery. This was the horrible oppression of our ancestors. And so for us to just take this to comfort ourselves 
without sort of taking a torch or moving things forward and just taking this as a day just to, like, celebrate ourselves and not to um, sort of, I guess, build on what our ancestors achieved, build on how they survived, that it's just not enough for me. It's just not, it's not enough to just be like, uh, it's not enough to just be like, oh, this is a day where we just are proud of being black. Like, yeah. I understand that um, black pride is important, but I think a lot of times, like, we don't really, as a community, we don't really recognize or we don't acknowledge that we didn't experience slavery, right? Like, we, like the people here today, we didn't experience that. And so our job is not to, like, just lament about it. Although, of course, we still suffer from, you know, some of the vestiges of it. But our job is not just to, like, lament about it and ask for, um, I don't know, um, reparations. Like, that word reparations. Like, there's no repairing, repairing this, right? (laughs) Because this didn't happen Mm -hmm. to us. Like, this happened to our ancestors. So even if we get a check for money, um, yeah, that can potentially help help um, resolve racial wealth gaps and disparities and have a positive impact. But it's not really repairing anything, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it's just stopping. It's just stopping, like, the bleeding maybe. But it's not repairing anything because we didn't actually, we weren't the direct victims of this, right? We weren't the direct people who were oppressed, who were enslaved. We have been oppressed, definitely. And I just always try to keep in context. Like, I have um, lived on the street. I've had a very, very difficult life. But at the same time, I just could not, I couldn't imagine, like, if I was in one of those, you know, movies about slavery, I would have died so quick because there's no way I would have been, I would have been, I would have been, the movie would have been very over very quickly for me because it just wouldn't, um, as many things in my life as I've been able to um, adapt to, um, I would have not not been able to adapt to a lot of these things. And just mm-hmm. the extent of suffering, I understand. And it's not good to just, you know, compare all the time. But sometimes it's worth comparing. Sometimes when it's just such a huge difference, it's worth comparing. Like, in the sense that we are not going through 
close to what our ancestors have went through and also in the sense that we as African Americans generally are not going through and just as black people in America, whether or not we are citizens, generally are not going through nearly as much as many black people in Africa are going through. And I find it just despicable and disgusting the idea that we are just entitled to more as opposed to, like, black people in Africa. I I find it disgusting, the idea that, like, um, that it's just normal and acceptable for so many black people in Africa um, to not have clean water, to not Mm -hmm. have running water, and not have um, electricity at times, not have um, access to the Internet. It is um, so profoundly different from the struggles that we constantly go through here. And the struggles that we go through here are real, uh, racism is still alive in America, um, and there are major obstacles for us as black people, and there is definitely a trauma associated with the anti-blackness. But also, we, we in America, as black Americans, also perpetuate this system. We in America, as black people, benefit from this system that is built on the backs of uh, people like black people like the people in Africa. For example, um, just the the whole economy, the way that we brain drain uh, Africa, the way that we exploit these countries, it still benefits us, right? In the way that we expect expect um, certain rights, but then don't extend those rights to these people in African countries. It is we are still benefiting from a lot of the exploitation, even while we are being exploited, even while we are suffering in this second-class citizenship, we are oppressed, but that does not mean that um, we are not also, um, as Americans, part of a class that is benefiting from um, the vestiges of colonialism. We are simultaneously suffering from some of the vestiges of slavery. Uh, So much of our culture has been warped and slavery has um, slavery has incepted so much 
black culture, so much black culture of what black people in America eat, what black people in America, so many of the, um, so many of the vices, the bad, um, the uh-huh. unhealthy things. Um, you know, Ryan, that's, that's when, when you talked about the reparations, you know what, what made me think was like, so if they gave everybody a check, that wouldn't make, you know, and I know some people would be like so happy. I got my reparations check. But that wouldn't make up for the years that, you know, the black family farms that were lost, the black businesses that, that didn't happen. And just think if that had been invested in us and then we had thought about our brothers and sisters who were in Africa and we were the ones who had reached back and, you know, went back and helped education and do that as opposed to letting them be colonized. I mean, what a difference it would make in the world. Yeah. And you wonder how many yeah. people are thinking bigger about reparations other than, oh, hey, I'm going to get that check. Yes. Uh, I really, like, resent calling it reparations, like, because it just mm-hmm. does not, it doesn't fix mm-hmm. slavery. Like, it doesn't fix slavery. It doesn't fix any of these things. Like, it's, I don't know what, it, it absolutely does not fix um, what has happened. It, it just doesn't. Um, especially because there is no fixing it. There is no redeeming it at this point. Like, there is no redeeming all the millions of people that were enslaved. The millions of people that died just through the transatlantic slave trade, like, without even mm-hmm. actually getting to America. It does not do anything for those people. Like, those people never got justice, and it is now impossible for those people to get justice. So reparations, it's just not, it's not really mm-hmm. repairing it, but um, there are definitely things that we can repair in our society um, to make uh, things better for the current generations that are alive. So it is important that we do those things. But I just think uh, we need to recognize that struggle and that honestly tragic thing that that this can't be fixed, right? This can't be fixed. And because this can't be fixed, for me at least, it motivates me even more to think how urgent it is to resolve some of these problems with um, in in Africa um, mm-hmm. because it can't it can't we cannot go back in time and fix all the bad things that happened. So it is paramount that we, at the very least, stop the stop the oppression that is still happening. Um, we cannot fix what we cannot uh, undo the oppression that has already happened that has caused uh, so many people to live through just un- living 
undignified uh, ways due largely to uh, Western countries and Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. So we're going to take our second break, and um, we're going to talk a little bit more about, about what you're seeing, and um, we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Here on collections by Michelle Brown. You know, Ryan, often you don't hear, I mean, not only just like in the black community, but particularly in the LGBTQ community, the, even the black LGBTQ community, that connection, you know, where what's happening to our brothers and sisters outside of this country, and particularly in Africa, I mean, which is just like, and a lot of what happens in Africa, like you talked earlier about the church, a lot of this persecution that's happening to black people, black LGBTQ people, is coming out of the church. And some of the yeah. people who were trained here, I know I met, um, I want to say Uganda, and he was talking about one of the people who did, like, who was the worst one, he had been here to one of these churches here and got the training, you know, on how to to go back and make life hell for LGBTQ people. Yes. Why aren't it's we so talking about it? Yeah, you know? it's so unfortunate. Um, there have been black preachers of Christianity in the United States, which in itself to me, it's just, I feel especially sad about that whole idea because it's, that in itself is the stripping of, you know, culture uh, that we are now cloaked in this, in this weapon of mass oppression, as I would call it. But, um, and this is now, this, like we have black preachers who, like you said, have, not just not helped things in Africa, but who have uh, sort of, I don't know, sought, seen the level of oppression to LGBTQI people in Africa and have sort of uh, gotten some sort of inspiration from it and have sought to to amplify it. <laughs> And it's mm-hmm. really um, 
amazing. It's uh, it's amazing in a really horrific way. Uh, but there are also uh, Christian, tons of Christian and Muslim people in Africa who, again, are cloaked in these religions that are not uh, not indigenous to their countries, not indigenous to our people, um, but they are cloaked in these religions and they have taken them all in from all these different um, historical oppressions and they are now using them as as tools to sort of organize and take take some sort of mob uh, mentality to run LGBTQI people out of their homes and to uh, imprison LGBTQI people and to uh, like like you saw literally mm-hmm. stone LGBTQI people or lynch LGBTQI people in Africa um, and and it's really horrific especially thinking like these religions are not even indigenous to these areas like these are exactly like um, these are vestiges, right? These are vestiges of colonialism and um, except they're not even vestiges because they're thriving and expanding. Um, So they're like even more than just that. But as far as I know, you brought this up before the um, stoning um, on Juneteenth last Juneteenth in Kakuma, Kenya, um, of LGBTQI people. And it's it's horrific. It's so horrific. I mean, it's, it's shocking. I don't know if, you know, if, if a person hasn't experienced it before, like to some degree, like I've been jumped and I've had... Mm-hmm had rocks hurled at me. Rocks are rocks are deadly. Like rocks can be mm-hmm. a deadly weapon. Um, truly. And so it is just it is horrific um that 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 kind of thing can happen in the midst of Pride Month and on Juneteenth. That we could segregate ourselves in such a way that that just decides that the the LGBTQ black people amongst within the black um, community are somehow in need of this this genocide essentially mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to be to be executed or to be uh, tortured like actually tortured um i mean it's it's shocking the stonings are so horrible but they're only one piece of what these lgbtqi refugees are going through 
in Kakamon, Kenya. Kakamon, Kenya is the largest refugee camp on earth, and it is where um, many LGBTQI refugees in Africa wind up, and um, it has just been hell for them. Like, it, it was evacuated, um, I don't know, maybe like two years ago, the LGBTUI people in it were evacuated because of how hostile it was. And, yeah. and it's still going on. Um, and even those people, I don't know that they were truly evacuated. They were just um, evacuated from the camp uh, because there are some people who were there at that time who still haven't been resettled there's, um, I spoke to a trans woman just this week who is still living in Nairobi waiting to, uh, waiting to be admitted into the United States, waiting to be, re- to be resettled in the United States. And um, she's been... It was like two years ago that she was that she uh, had been, I guess, evacuated, if you would even call it that, from Kakamo. Yeah. And so it's just it's just unreal that somebody would live as a refugee for like five years and would live in these horrific sort of conditions of that are just antithetical to every sort of human rights and UN policy, but that just are not acknowledged. And I think there's definitely an element of racism here. There's an element of, like, uh, of the idea of uh, protecting LGBTQI refugees, which still, even amongst um, other races, is not um nearly supported enough i think globally but when you talk about doing that for black lgbtqi people um it is just there is just so little conversation around it there's so little um there's so little real um, action being taken uh, by the people who are supposed to be protecting LGBTQI refugees, um, especially when those refugees are black. Uh, and it's just, it's just insane. I mean, after being, after what, in March, they were bombed and set on fire, like, yeah. These are, I mean, the videos are just, I can't put it into words. I can't put it into words. Like, they are just insane. They are insane that this is happening and that no one is, no one is hardly talking about it. <laughs> and um, it's so tragic um, because there is 
so much that we could do. And this is, it infuriates me, quite frankly, um, how much talk there is always about immigration from the people who are just coming to our borders. Mm-hmm. And it is totally inequitable to just allow people in to borders because we have actual refugees who need to get in who are not being allowed. It is totally inequitable to just allow someone in just by virtue of being closer and being able to walk to the border as opposed to people who are an ocean away and who are in the most desperate of need and in the most dangerous of situations, through, who are living through daily harassment and constant violence and threats to their lives. Um, and so it, it becomes a real issue of just um, optics as opposed to justice. Um, the optics of having a bunch of immigrants at the border is just something that um, makes the that gets the attention of Democrats so much more than people who are unable to actually get to our border to uh, to have that sort of issue with optics. And so because mm-hmm. there is an issue with the optics of um, people coming to our southern border primarily, um, those people get priority over, like, refugees who could not possibly get to our borders. Um, so it is just infuriating to me. Well, you know, we had um, someone who came here to speak who was from Uganda, and he was talking about how, you know, basically, you know, it was like a run for the board. You know, there's an opportunity, you know, put in one bag what you thought would be important, you know, so that you could apply for asylum and then go through the, these ways. Like you said, he couldn't go, like, go to Mexico and just walk across the border. But there are ways that he had to go through all of these ways to get here and then was with an organization that basically kept him safe while he applied for asylum. But his case, well, it wasn't like it went to the bottom of the pile. Do you know what I mean? Even though he had things that showed, you know, how he had been persecuted, how there were ways he couldn't contact his family because if they knew, you know, it could put them in peril. But he wasn't that face crossing the border with the children and, you know, pulling at people's heartstrings, and it was like, he was having a really hard time. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so unfortunate the way that I think not even just American politicians, I shouldn't say politicians, American um, government officials and leaders, um, it's so unfortunate not just how they uh sort of have this idea of out of sight, out of mind when it comes to 
immigration. But it's also so unfortunate that as a population that we accept that same fallacy that we also uh, just ignore people who are clearly in the greatest need just to prioritize the people who are closest. There is no um, there is no justification for why someone's rights are somehow more important just because of where they are. It, there's no justification for saying that, oh, well, we got to help. I mean, this is what people say all the time, you know, like uh, we have to help people in our own neighborhood or something like that. Bullshit. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like the, the people in our own neighborhoods, trust me, I've been on the street in Chicago for years. It's, it's terrible. And first of all, for one thing, the people who say stuff like this, they don't generally help people in their own neighborhood. They don't. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, even if they did, the level of obstacles, the level of oppression that people are going through, that should be the, that should determine the priority, not the location that a person is in, excuse me, whether a person is able to. And, I mean, I've helped people. um, I don't want people thinking like that. I'm over there, like, um, against against other immigrants. I'm not. But the fact is, in the United States, immigration is primarily framed as a Latin thing. It's framed as something that um, we just support Latin immigrants. We don't support um, we don't even really consider African immigrants so much, although we do have some African immigrants, uh, many African immigrants in the United mm-hmm. States. But the way that we get African immigrants in the United States is through a generally unethical way of brain draining these countries in Africa. We suck out the people we recruit and suck out the most talented people that we can find in the the scientists and all the people who these countries desperately need to be their leaders, we suck them out and bring them to the United States to make our society better. But if we give them, you know, and we give them like scholarships and and make their uh, and tell them that the American dream is possible. And so then they they come and they do their thing here, right? And uh-huh. um, as sad as it is to say, you know, like I, I understand, like that I don't. I hate the idea of them just needing to 
not come here, but their own countries a lot of times need them. If they're really that um, great of leaders, their own countries need them. And so we extract the people who are most necessary to these countries. And then we hesitate to let in the refugees and the people who are in desperate need. You know, uh, I mean, and in so many ways, I guess how do we amplify a global voice so, I mean, you know, there's only one planet, and I don't care, you know, how, how, how you know, much you want to say, you know, put USA first or whatever. There's only one, one, one planet. And what happens in Africa, what happens eventually will affect all of us. I mean, I, if nothing else, COVID has shown us, you know. We can't think, nobody is really thinking. How do we amplify the voices? of what's happening in Africa, particularly in LGBTQI communities here, so that they are considered a part of pride, that they are in the conversations that would do that. How do we do that? I I think that's a great question. Definitely will come back to that, but something you just said, Something you just said a second ago really resonated with me, um, and I tried to keep this in mind. Just um, you said that about what happens in Africa uh, will affect us too. What happens in Africa definitely definitely affects us because it is a crime not just for you know. Um, Africans to be LGBTQI in Africa. Uh-huh. But it's a crime for me, right? Like, I can't go to these places. If I go to these places, like, I'm – it's it's a crime for me to be myself, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so I think we need to really think of it like that. Like, it is a crime for me to be who I am um, if I go to this location. Um, so in the same sense of, like, like if Texas, if it was a, if being homosexual or doing homosexual acts or whatever were against the law in Texas, it would be, you know, it would be against the law for me um, still in that area. And so it's the same sort of general principle, like, well, that's not right. Like, even if I'm not in Texas currently, like, uh-huh. that's, that's an issue for me if I ever want to go there or if I ever want to do business there or if I ever want to support the people there or ever want to be involved in anything with Texas in this hypothetical scenario. Um, so we have to think about it as, like, it is also criminalizing us if we go to these places. And uh-huh. unfortunately, we just think like, okay, well, we just want to go to these places as opposed to trying to solve the problem for ourselves and especially for the people who are there, who live there, right? Instead of thinking of solutions, we just think, 
okay, well, we'll just cut that part out of the world if we won't really <laughs> think about that. Yeah, you know, we won't think about it, you know. Exactly. Um, but as far as how to amplify these things, uh, I think it is uh, really necessary, like you started the show off talking about intersectionality, and I think that's, I think that's really the key. I think it's important for people to understand that oppressed people can oppress people. It's not um, – I hear all these things all the time, like, um, that, you know, black people can't oppress people. Black people can oppress people. Like, just because a group is oppressed does not mean that that group cannot participate in oppression. Black people participate in oppression of other black people, even when they're not LGBTQI. Like, these are things that are ingrained in our society. So it's just a natural um, sort of evolution that it shows up at an individual level. Like, it shows up at an individual level that a, that a person is being racist because it is sort of the atmosphere of our society. And we need to tackle that atmosphere, and we need to, as corny as it sounds, we need to really unite. We need to really unite around the ideas of justice and not just around, you know, like pushing this oppression around, like where one month is like, okay, let's, let's, you know, talk about Black Lives Matter. And then, although it's been a lot more than now, obviously, but a lot of times it would just be like, okay, this event just happened, and so we're going to push for this one group, uh, justice for this one group. And then some other event happens, and then we're going to stop pushing for justice for this one group, and we're going to shift to this other group. And we need to be pushing for justice for all of us all the time, like because it is just not – it is not sustainable. It is not, or it may be sustainable in the work. Uh, I mean, also maybe that, but it is not efficient. It is not efficient for us to get to a place of equity when we are just, when we are not doing things in an equitable way. If we are pushing for equity for black people, we can't really push for equity for black people when we're leaving some of the black people um, who are by no fault of their own, um, just just the way they are. It just LGBTQI black people cannot be left out of equity conversations about black people um, because that just isn't an equity conversation. And so I think uh, the same goes also for Africans. Um, We cannot push for equity for black people and ignore a whole continent full of black people. Like, I I mean, that is shocking to me how frequent um, African Americans can just disregard 
that that yeah. there's a whole continent full of black people. <laughs> there's a whole continent know, full you of, know? Yeah, full of black people. We can't just we can't achieve black equality and just leave the whole continent behind. We we've tried that and it's not it's not really working. Um and so I think that a lot of it comes into into I mean, true anti-blackness, I think, is is directly directly linked to, and it is the natural evolution of true anti-black. I mean, it is the natural evolution of pro-blackness to be um, pro-black for for <laughs> black LGBTQI people, and to be pro-black for uh, for African people and to be pro-black for LGBTQI African people. It is just the natural mm-hmm. evolution of that um, of that ideology of that of those ethics. So I think uh, it's just important to stop trying to cut cut these groups out. It's important that when we see uh, news of things happening in Africa, that we take notice, that we don't just sort of, like, write it off as, like, oh, well, that's Africa, so that's that's <laughs> just a sad place. That's just a sad mm-hmm. place where those things happen. Like, no, it's not just a sad place where those things happen. It is a sad place where those things happen, unfortunately. But it's, it doesn't need to be. It's not like this is just some continent where where it is just cursed. This is this is the effect of decisions that are made uh as far as um for human rights, as far as for trade, for all these different things. These these uh situations are not like magically just happening. It's not just like they all these magical bad things just appear in Africa. They appear in Africa because of there are causes to these effects, right? Um, and so I think it's just important for us to actually uh, not like when we see these sad sad stories to amplify them as opposed to just seeing it and thinking, oh, that's sad, and, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, and scrolling past it. And, you know, and as we celebrate, okay, black and brown people who are now in political offices and and positions of authority to get in their face, and if you don't hear them talk about that, just sort of say, what about what's happening in Africa? You know, I mean, don't, we got them in there. We voted them in there. So let's hold them accountable. Make them yes. take a stand. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because we are in positions of power. Like, more than ever, black people in mm-hmm. America are in positions of power, and black people in America can make can make huge obstacles go away for uh, black people in other countries as well. Um, for um, we can 
fix some of the bad um, or at the very least stop the bad from continuing in some of these places um, because we are, of all countries, probably uh, the most the most empowered black people mm-hmm. in America are probably the most empowered um, of black people in in most any country. I mean, really, you know, so, and, and you know what? And that's your power. More than a check for reparation, hey, and I'm going to take it now. You send me a check, I'm going to take it. <laughs> but use that for you. your buying power, Use your voice. I mean, like you said, we are at a time where we have political power. And, you know, if not now, when? Yes. Mm-hmm. I would well, just Ryan, say, go ahead. I would, I would just say also, um, so I'm sorry, I, I've been just sort of talking off the cuff on all these things. So I, I missed some of the things that I, I really wanted to get out there. Um, okay. But if I could just say uh, the LGBTQI refugees in Kakuma, Kenya, are um, I'm involved with their organizing, um, and I've been fortunate to, uh, for them to, to include me on different things. Mm-hmm. And so... We are trying to help organize, and they are organizing a democratic uh, sort of coalition um, of LGBTQI refugees within the camp. The camp is huge, so it is really critical that it be um, this democratic organization. I actually just had a meeting with some of them uh, this morning, which was afternoon there uh, via Zoom. And so it's, there are some inspiring things um, going on, but there are still lots of traumatic things going on. Um, hopefully we will have a uh, fundraiser established soon. There are uh, some, you know, tricky parts because it's not, the, the coalition isn't like a, not-for-profit in the United States with a 501c3, but I'm uh, currently in communication with some organizations about trying to get that fundraiser going. But I would just encourage people to connect because this is so important and this is – their lives matter. Their lives matter, Uh and I'm constantly telling them that um, because – I feel like the world is telling them that their lives don't um, and is ignoring them. And I'm constantly telling them that they matter. Um, And so I would ask people to please go to our uh, Facebook and like our page and invite your friends to like our page, um, the coalition's page, I mean. And uh, that is uh, Facebook backslash, I mean, Facebook.com backslash L-G-B-T-Q-I-K-U-K-A-M-2. 
A. Uh, hey. I'm sorry, I messed it up, though. I messed it up. Uh, I misspelled it. Okay, so it. tell me again. I'm spelling it from memory. So it's uh, Facebook, Facebook.com backslash L-G-B-T-Q-I-K-A-K-U-M-A. Um, and, yeah, just like that page. Uh, invite your friends to like that page. And soon we will uh, hopefully have a fundraiser up on there. And once you like that page, then you'll be able to follow and uh, keep in touch about the coalitions, uh, about what's going on on the ground there and about how you can support that coalition um, you know, like I said, we want to be able to give people something to do. Not just talk about it, be about it. Go out, you know, do this. You can do yeah. that. And, hey, and when you see that fundraiser, you know, before you spend your reparations check or dream of spending your reparations check, donate, help, yeah. talk about it, you know, use your power. We're going to have events. We're going to have events, too. Um uh, coming up where we're going to be trying to uh, get people activated um, to reach out to their representative to ask them to evacuate um, and resettle the LGBTQI refugees in Kagama. Um So look out for that too. But we're going to put all that information up on the Facebook page. So uh, that is sort of the like central place to learn more about this. Oh, good, good. So is there anything else that you want to talk about, that you want to tell us about uh, this I work that you're doing? I think that's uh, pretty much um, the gist of it. I would just say that the although I am here talking about this, this is not something that is uh, – led by me, I mean, I am sort of like consulting on this mm-hmm. uh, with them because I manage campaigns and I do like, um, I'm like a, obviously an activist. And so organizing is something that I'm sort of an expert in. And so I am helping sort of consult on those things. But the actual leadership, like the actual fundraiser, all that stuff is going to be um, determined by the people on the ground there. Uh-huh. Uh, they are electing their own leaders. That's why I said this is like a democratic thing. Um, uh-huh. They are going to elect their own leaders of the LGBTQI refugees in Kakama, and they are going to, uh, of those elected leaders, decide how those funds are spent from the fundraiser, um, as mm-hmm. opposed to right now, there are just tons of different fundraisers or like individuals because somebody will be like, and you know, and this is out of the kindness of their heart, right? Uh, I mean, I think for the most part, but somebody will find out like some sad thing that happened to a specific refugee and like somebody will think like, oh, um, like I had someone from Kakama messaged me and asked me 
to uh, buy them a mattress uh, because they mm. sleep on the ground, mm-hmm. right? They sleep on the ground. And it's like, yo, I definitely would like you not to have to sleep on the ground, right? But also there are um, refugees there who have typhoid and who can't, who UNHCR is not, is not, providing any treatment for them. So they have to get private physicians, uh, care from private physicians. So there are priorities, um, and it is important, I think, that those elected leaders amongst themselves make those decisions as opposed to, like, us deciding, like, that, like, one out of 200 refugees is all of a sudden going to get a mattress or something. And that's not to say, like, that that person doesn't deserve to sleep on a mattress, right? But we unfortunately have to make decisions and so um, about how that money is spent. And I think that the best people to do it are mm-hmm. the people who are elected by them um, and chosen to be their leaders. And so that's what makes this really different, and that's what makes this um something that I think is really sustainable as opposed to each, you know, random person from a country who creates a GoFundMe. Um, Thank you. Which yeah. is why we haven't done that because we don't want to just create some, like, just some random thing. We want to really make it um, about the entire population there. So, uh or so yeah so i just wanted to make that clear that um that is what makes this different i think it's really important to do this from a position of empowering people as opposed to just like doling out some charity um and when you just give out to one person when you when so many of the people there don't even have phones and cannot contact you and let you know that they have uh, some medical condition and are in need of medical care. And those people can never get in contact with you. Um, it's, it's just important to fund the sort of uh, boots on the ground there mm-hmm. as opposed to individuals that reach out. And, you know, and and how, you know, I think that these communities have seen enough of people coming in with their dollars and then saying, and this is how you should spend our dollars, that we're, we're giving it to you, but this is how you need to spend it, instead of going to the people who are, have their boots on the ground, who know their community, and who are doing the work. And, you know, part of giving is to give and to let go and let, and let them do it. And so I think that what you're doing is just that approach is so admirable. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, it's a difficult task. I, I'll admit that. It's a difficult task. Um, they have been – I'll just say it's a difficult task, but – uh, yeah, I, I really didn't want to 
to do this in a way that wouldn't be um I really felt strongly that it should be like democratic and that they should elect their own leaders. Um, and so I didn't want to be like the leader of this group as a lot of mm-hmm. these sort of groups have spawned up and then they're like led by somebody. Um, and so I'm sort of like facilitating and helping, but the actual like decisions are made by by the leaders that they choose. So um, I think that's a really important distinction as opposed to, like you said, like I'm not deciding from all these thousands of miles away, like who gets what and uh, because it's just not feasible. I can't, I couldn't know as much as they would know when they are actually there. Although I do know a lot at this point because I talk to them like every single day. I talk to them like twenty four seven, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. So I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to amplify this. Well, Ryan, you know I thank you. I mean, this is so important, and you know that's one of the voices that that you know to talk about what's bigger than this. I do get to Chicago periodically. I hope to see you sometime this summer. Um, to talk to you in person about this. Um, I want to thank my guest, Chicago-based environmental, animal rights, and social justice activist, Ryan O'Donnell. Ryan believes it's important to shine a light on the LGBTQI plus refugees in Kakuma, Kenya, and reminds us that until we are all free, none of us are free. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.